Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, and it is science on your radio device or your podcasting app. My name is Chris, and joining me, as always, we have Claire and Stu. And Claire, hello. How how are you, Claire? I am going well. Um, and this week, I've brought uh, to you a story. I think. Um, that maybe not everyone can relate to, but I mean, surely everyone at some point in their life has been bitten by either a human or an animal, whether that be a bad bite that uh, requires attendance at a, at a hospital and further sort of medical intervention or not might be a different matter, but everyone can relate to an animal bite. Are we talking like mammals in particular or counting mosquitoes and... We're not nature. counting mosquitoes, but we are talking about we are counting um, other things like spiders and, okay. and and whatnot, but not mosquitoes. Anything that can um, land you in a hospital um, is what we're gonna what we're gonna talk about tonight. Because there's been some new research um, from a hospital up, up in Cairns that over the last eight years have been collecting this data of patients at the hospital. And um, uh, they're the, the things that they've been bitten by and taken, like, you know, demographic information from people um, and got sort of like microbiological swabs and sort of looking at their, out, their long-term outcomes and how long before they actually go to hospital uh, and, you know, and then what their long-term outcomes are. And it's fascinating stuff. I find this stuff very interesting. Like, who's turning up at hospital with these animal bites? How bad are they? And then, uh, and then, you know, what what are the outcomes at the end of it as well? Great. Well, um, I look forward to hearing what those outcomes are. And yeah, um, I mean, it's really a story to sink your teeth into. Hey, don't don't waste all your good material just now, Claire. <laughs> Save some. Save some. Speaking of of saving the good material, Stu. Well, uh, speaking of hospitals, um, funnily enough, I've got a story, uh, and we were talking um, late last year about uh, anaesthetic and and how we kind of don't really know how they work uh, to, to any great degree, but I'm talking a little bit about anaesthetic again tonight, but not probably not what you're thinking about. I'm, I'm looking at that people have been doing research into what affects do anesthetics that work on humans and animals have on other organisms like plants, for example? Mm. Yeah, I think I talked, touched on this um, not too long ago. We talked about um, sleep being studied in various animals and how one of the things was looking at how things like anesthetics and stuff affect very simple animals. And now you're telling me that plants can also go unconscious? Well, they'd have to be conscious in order for <laughs> that to be the case, but... There's not a great deal of evidence that they are, but they are affected by anaesthetics and people have been doing experiments on this for uh, a surprisingly long time considering 
uh, how early the earliest experiments were, which is um, something I will touch on in the story as well. But but what do anaesthetics do to plants and what can that tell us about what they do to us? And maybe it can help us find out how they work on humans as well. Fantastic. I'm sure that's for your plant with the name Sleep something in the title hopefully i'll think of it by the time we come around to stew's story and i can make a very clever joke um unless he already hasn't already got that joke lined up the excitement is killing me on with the show So I have a friend who was bitten by a spider recently. Um, it, I'm not one of those, you know, hugely venomous spiders that we're all a little bit terrified of, uh, but certainly enough for the bite area to swell substantially. She had to go to the doctors pretty quick to get it checked out and ended up on antibiotics for uh, quite a few days to make sure the infection didn't spread. But it got me thinking about human-animal interactions, especially when it comes to bites. And what, you know, the long-term outcomes are. Because surely there are some bites, you know, that you might treat differently to others in terms of, you know, what, whether there be a risk of envenomation or, you know, whether you just like if it's your pet cat or something and you're mm. like, nah, it'll be fine, surely. But, and then there are things like sharks where... <laughs> and there are things like sharks. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, at, you know, probably there are a lot of different sharks. I'm sure, you know, not all shark bites are created equal either. No, no, true, true. And, and at least, at least in Australia, we don't have to worry about, uh, bites from animals like they do in other parts of the world where they can get rabies and things like that from animal bites. We don't Very have that true. problem in Australia. We're pretty lucky. No, we just have poisonous, the most poisonous animals in the world. We don't have to worry <laughs> about rabies. We just have like taipans and, you know... Blurring octopuses and that yeah, one. but but you know they're they're specific types of animals. This you know rabies, any kind of animal that can get infected by rabies can suddenly become a danger. Whereas you know a snake is a snake; exactly. it's always going to be a snake. You can stay yeah. away from snakes. Yeah. Good idea. Good idea. Yeah, and even you know something as innocuous as your pet dog um, in the wrong place at the wrong time could you know contract rabies overseas, mm-hmm. but it's not going to happen here. Could turn into Cujo and get you trapped oh, in your car. <laughs> Indeed. Um, anyway, <clears throat> so there's been some new research that's been released from the Kobe Institute for Infection and Immunity in Society, and it's been published in a paper. Um, it's called Animal Bite Wounds and Their Management in Tropical Australia. Uh, it's great. It's a great read, everyone would recommend. Um, you can find it in the International Journal of Infectious Diseases, as you would. Um, anyway, this research, it's a quite interesting summary of what animal bites present to a particular hospital in the tropics. In this case, it's a Cairns hospital, and it's over a seven-year period. So we're talking 2013 to 2020. Um, I don't know whether, you know, they just stopped after 2020 or it's like, well, COVID, we got better things to do than... than um, track animal bites and maybe we'll just stop the research time to do some data analysis we're stuck at home yeah (laughs) exactly exactly and it looks at who did the biting when the bite victims showed up to hospital what the outcomes were for the patients and then interestingly it also tracks the microbes that were found at the bite sites 
and what types of infection were present as well. Uh, now, all in all, there were 1,700 bite patients admitted to hospital um, and they were detailed in this research, which over seven years or so makes sense, I guess, especially when you take into consideration about half of all animals will be, sorry, about half of all Australians will be bitten by an animal during their lifetime and animal bites often become infected so people might end up presenting in hospital. And in a tropical place like Cairns, an animal bite can become uh, pretty serious considering there might be tropical pathogens or, you know, the bad microbes might be present, which increases infection likelihood. And, you know, in a, in a uh, far north Queensland town like Cairns, although it's pretty centralised, you've got a lot of communities around there that may be more remote and people might have to travel a bit further to get to hospital. So that might increase your chances of, you know, the outcomes being pretty, um, uh, a, little, a little bit poorer because they might take a little bit more time to get to hospital. So with the intention of finding out a bit more about bites in Australia and whether we are doing what we need to be doing about, you know, antibiotic and treatment, the researchers got to work looking at the data. And I have to say, it's quite interesting, uh, maybe even fascinating. Uh, first of all, let me tell you straight up, there's a wide variety of animals that do the biting, but I wonder what you think is in the top five. And think, um, uh, so arachnids and insects aren't, aren't in it. So it's no spiders, no insects. Oh, so not even ants are in the top five. No, 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 no. And I don't know if they just didn't include those species or they're just not presented. They're not in the top ten. Okay. Yeah. Um, cats? Oh, yeah, cats are number three. Very yeah. good. Yeah. Then when you play with your cat, your cat will, you know, get a bit annoyed and bite you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dog. You probably won't yeah. go to hospital for it, but you know. Yeah. Dog. Dog. Yep. Dog's yep. number two. Uh, yep. So there were five hundred. Tro- tropical North Queensland. I'm going to say pigs. Ooh, pig is on the list, but <sighs> it goes down to number twelve. Oh, okay. All so right. In the top five. Um, I'm guessing crocodile is not there. <laughs> crocodile is there. Crocodile oh, is, is number fourteen. <laughs> Okay. There were ten crocodile attacks. Wow. Is it? Yeah. Is it? Is number one birds? No, there's there's no bird. Oh, see, you know, I would have thought the cassowary would be would be oh, in there. Like yeah. their talons. Yeah, they they, they would just yeah, scare you away so you don't get close enough to get bitten. <laughs> Neither of you have got the top one. No. Uh, is it a mammal or is it a? Can we give a um a family? It's a reptile. Is it a snake? Yeah, it's a snake. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Snakes, 734 snake bites end up in hospital, which, you know, I mean, if you're going to get, if you're going to go to hospital for any sort of bite, then yeah. um, you're probably more likely to go to hospital for a snake bite than maybe a cat a bite. A pig bite. Even though, you know, well, I'm not a pig bite, although 17 people did go to hospital yeah, yeah. for pig bites. And horse bites. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I can see that. They've got big mouths and big teeth. They do have big mouths. Horses are big, bite, big bitey, and people think people think they're nice and friendly, and they try and give them things out of their hand all the time, which does probably end up in more bites. I think. Oh dear. Um, now, interestingly, if you drill down a little bit 
into the research and you start to look at gender um, and who was getting bitten by what. Um, the researchers report that young male patients are overrepresented in who's getting bitten and ended up ending up in hospital um, in general. This is especially true in both pigs and crocodile bites, <laughs> exclusively 100% male. It, it, this doesn't surprise me. I, you know, I laugh just... as you may, Claire, but this is not a surprise to me that, that young men are ta- you know, <laughs> dicing with death, pigs. Yeah, taunting pigs and, and crocodiles. crocodiles. I know. Uh, well, the writing's right there in the Infectious Diseases Journal. Um, and the other thing I found quite interesting is that older women were more likely to be bitten by cats <laughs> and ending up in hospital. Are you just, like, stereotyping here? <laughs> I'm just telling you the data. Okay. Take it as you will, Chris. Okay, okay, the, da- cool. the data don't lie, Chris. This is how it is. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it, it's not 100% of women. It's It's something like 69% or so. But um, it certainly bucks against the trend for every other mm. every other animal which skews male um, okay. male bites. Yeah. So the researchers could divide the bitten patients into two groups. So the first group of people had been bitten by a potentially venomous animal such as a snake, um, and whose or whose encounter had resulted in significant trauma, like uh, a shark or a crocodile. Yeah. Over 96% of these patients came to hospital within eight hours of the encounter, and most people in this group didn't need antibiotics as a follow-up, and very few developed a wound infection because they came to the hospital so quickly. The second group were um, people who presented over 24 hours after their encounter. So over 85% of these people already had or subsequently developed a wound infection, which is pretty high. Uh, these, pa- these patients had a high chance of death, ICU admission, amputation, and other complications as the tissue damage um, complicating the bite was ended up being irreversible. I mean, think about a cat bite. Generally, they aren't terribly serious. Mm. The actual bite itself. And so if it got infected, it would be the reason that you would go to hospital. So it doesn't surprise yeah. me that those people have got a higher rate of infection because that's probably the reason why they're presenting. Exactly. So, yeah, you're exactly right. And over 75% of cat bites that came to hospital after 25 after 24 hours had a um, quite well-established infection. Also, from a microbiological point of view, the researchers found that despite the range of animals doing the biting and the tropical location, the disease-causing, the disease-causing microbes that do the infecting were similar to those seen down south in more temperate regions. So it was similar um, species of bacteria. You got your Pastorella, Multicetes, your antibiotic-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, your Streptococcus species, your mixed enteric bacteria, you know, the who's who of uh, bad boy microbes on the scene um, were present there and, you know, you'd expect them present in um, uh, southern states as well. So overall, the recommendations um, and suggested for patients to have the best outcome after their bite is to present early at hospital um, or go to a doctor and get your wound checked out, or even better, try not to get bitten in the first place. So in order to avoid poor outcomes, don't get bit. 
is basically the advice. Don't and don't antagonize pigs. Don't and don't crocodiles. harass the animals, and they will be less likely to bite you, guys. And I mean, guys. Unless you're playing with your cat, older women, I see yeah, you. Don't harass the cat because cats tend to bite uh, but in anger as well. I don't know. Shelly never seems to bite in anger, like unless you scare her or something. But she's like, you'll be yeah. patting her, and she'll just go ah. And just like hold your hand <laughs> hold on in your, yeah in her mouth <laughs> and she doesn't bite down really hard she just holds it there she's like that's enough you can stop now across Australia on the community radio network you're listening to Lost in Science. Back in December last year we were talking a bit about sleep and anesthetics and how. Uh, science is not really quite sure how either of these things really work or kind of what they're actually doing to us. Um, and Chris, you were talking about how in other species of animal, uh, sleep might be the dominant state of their life and possibly being awake is the unusual thing about humans and animals that are more like us. Yeah, we have evolved to do stuff as an awake period, yeah. Yeah, uh, which is which is quite an interesting idea that you know we're we're the weirdos because we're awake and maybe lots of other species that we don't recognise are asleep most of the time. Oh. Is um, there a life form that perhaps does not do much and perhaps could be asleep all the time? Well, cats, we you know, cats basically are. I was trying to segue into your stories, Stu. Oh, well, there there may be there may be life forms that. Uh, appear to be doing very little, but they're, you know, might be quite active as well. Um, But comparing familiar biology to more distantly related organisms can often reveal new ways of looking at things we don't really understand and lead to experimental paths that would not be otherwise obvious to us. Um, And one of the things I think about anaesthetics, because I did talk about anaesthetics last year, that is confusing, I guess, is that many of the chemical substances used for anaesthetic reactions in humans are not chemically similar, but they produce similar effects on on people. So what this suggests, it's, it's hard to say, but this might suggest that the chemicals have a similar effect on the same metabolic pathways in different ways, or they might have different effects on different pathways that achieve the same result, which is either numbing an area like a local anaesthetic or completely removing consciousness, which is what uh, general anaesthetics tend to do. Um, and one of the first anaesthetics used on humans was ether, uh, which is a very old-fashioned but still actually used um, anaesthetic. But this was quickly adopted in surgery by Western doctors uh, in, in what can really be described as a, a medical revolution. Um, and using ether to put people to sleep meant long and complicated operations could be performed without anything like the level of discomfort people would have otherwise experienced, which was, you know, basically bite down on this stick uh, while we, you know, Mm. chop part of you open and and have a look around. Uh, But with ether, they could, they could do sort of more complicated surgery basically uh, without, you know, putting people through agony, I guess. Um, now, there's a French scientist by the name of Claude Bernard wondered whether the same effect would be felt by other species, and he began to experiment for himself uh, in the 1870s. 
Um, now, Bernard was no stranger to performing operations on live subjects, including animals. Uh, and having written about his own physiology research, and this is translated from the French, I assume, uh, he wrote, The physiologist is no ordinary man. He is a learned man, a man possessed and absorbed by a scientific idea. He does not hear the animal's cries of pain. He is blind to the blood that flows. He sees nothing but his idea and organisms which conceal him from his secrets he is resolved to discover. So basically he would just operate on stuff and, and it was known as vivisection. He was a big vivisectionist, meaning cutting up things that were still alive. Um, or he was a sociopath or something like that. Well, he obviously wasn't concerned about anaesthetizing subjects before operating them, though his uh, wife and daughters left him uh, after he- discovering him researching on the family pets and his wife became an advocate against vivisection oh. uh, following, the- following their separation. So not, not necessarily a popular uh, way of going about things. But what he did do was took this ether and decided he would test it on plants. Uh, so he noticed that there was a plant known as the sensitive plant, which is also uh, the uh, botanical name is Mimosa pudica. Uh, this folds its leaves when it's touched by insects to stop the insects eating them. So insects crawling along leaves, it folds oh. up its leaves, the insect falls off and it can't eat the leaves. It's a defense mechanism. We used to have a lot of them up in, up in Queensland when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. And you'd probably go around and, and touch the leaves and make them all fold up. Yeah, and yeah. Go, oh, a lot of fun cool. to play with, yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, it's great. I mean, it is cool and it's great fun. Yeah. Um, but what he what he did was he exposed these uh, these sensitive plants to ether and found that they no longer responded to touch. So they didn't fold up their leaves because they were wow. somehow anaesthetized by using the ether. Ooh. Um, now, this led to all sorts of uh, metaphysical discussion in the 1870s about life forces and other fashionably supernatural Victorian thinking, uh, which was, you know, dismissed over time as we gained a better understanding of nerves and nervous systems and, and this developed. But the question remained, if plants have no nerves, how does the anaesthetic have an effect on the plant? So more recently, researchers have continued to look into this phenomenon and they have exposed various plants to ether to see what would happen. And they found that ether does have an effect on a number of different plant species in various ways. So they've actually looked into the movement of plants. And as I said, we probably don't think of plants as moving very much. They tend to do most of their uh, movement very slowly, not visible to the naked eye. But there are some things which they are still quite slow to the human eye, but they are visibly moving and measurable. You know, even within the course of a day, uh, there are certain plants that can move. So one example of this is pea plants, um, as in, you know, peas, snow peas, that kind of thing. Um, and they have tendrils, which which they use to climb up other plants in, in the wild, but, you know, up structures and, and trellises and things in cultivation. Um, and the, the tendrils themselves make a circular motion as they grow and as the plant oh. grows. And they're actually sort of searching around for something to grab onto. And when they come into contact with an object they 
curl up really quite quickly. So within only a couple of hours, they'll curl up really quickly and pull themselves tighter to the object. And then the plant can grow a bit taller and then it reaches around and finds another thing to grab onto. And that's how they get really tall. So what they found by exposing pea plants to ether was that the circular motion of the tendrils stopped and also the ability of the tendrils to to curl up really fast and grab onto things also was prevented by the exposure to this uh, to this anesthetic. Um, they also have tested uh, much more rapidly moving plants like Venus flytraps. So everyone knows the Venus flytrap. It's really cool. Uh, it gets, uh, you know, snaps shut almost instantly when the trigger hairs inside the trap are triggered by insects crawling around and it eats them, basically. Um, so these plants were exposed to ether and the snapping shut trap motion was prevented. So the ether didn't allow that to happen when they were exposed to um, this anesthetic. So recent research published in Nature uh, has sort of reviewed some of this research on plants and anaesthetic and using other anaesthetics as well. But what they've found is that at least part of the reason this happens is disruption of a glutamate signaling pathway in the plants, which is how these rapid movements of plants are triggered. Now, the action potential in plants is not the same signaling pathway as in animal nerve pathways but it's very similar what's what's an action potential so action potential is that it's kind of uh it's kind of set up like so if you stretch out a rubber band that's waiting to happen and the action potential is uh the stretched rubber band when you let go of it it springs back into shape so the action potential is the stretching out the glutamate in in the in the plant or the glutamate pathway in the plant is setting up an action potential and so in the case of the venus flytrap it is setting up the ability of the trap to shut really quickly cool so when it gets triggered it goes snap and and shuts and this is it's it's sort of related to nerve signaling in animal nervous systems but it's not quite the same thing but the ether is disrupting that glutamate pathway, and that's probably what it's doing in animal nerve signaling as well. Mm. So there's some connection to it, even though it's not exactly the same thing. But what they actually did was looked at all of the possible things that the ether could be disrupting. And in the you know in the case of the Venus flytrap, it's a very simple system. The nerve, uh, the the uh, the trigger hairs inside the trap are a mechanical action. It didn't disrupt the mechanical action. That still happened. So it had to have been this glutamate pathway. That's how they figured it out of what it was actually doing. Um, so that there is some similarity between what it's doing in the plant and what it actually disrupts and what it might be doing in animals and in humans as well. And they've also uh, looked at various other effects of ether on plants. So um, there is various kinds of electrical signaling in plants, which is related to when plant tissue gets damaged. So if a leaf gets eaten or a root gets eaten by, you know, a, a, an insect or an animal, it sets up a, an electrical signal which uh, kind of warns the rest of the leaf or the rest of the plant that it's actually being attacked and triggers a whole lot of responses to that damage to the tissue. Um, they've found that ether disrupts those signals those electrical signals as well which is a lot more similar to nerve signaling which is all sort of electrical based as well um so this 
research is really amazing and there is no evidence that you know plants do have any consciousness so therefore they can't become unconscious as we mentioned before but it is sort of a new direction investigating why our current anesthetics work on us by understanding how they work on other organisms in this case the plant uh, signaling is disrupted that might give us some clues of what it's actually doing to us as well we're probably not ready uh, for a paper I discovered while I was preparing this story, I was looking through a whole lot of research. There was a paper published called A Rally Call for the Renaissance of Idealist Panpsychism and Entheogenic Self-Betterment, which was a response to uh, this this plant anaesthetic research, all trying to somehow tie it into uh, quantum entanglement and all sorts of metaphysical weirdness. But I don't think that guy was a particularly scientifically minded author um, but it is a published paper uh, not from not from a reputable <laughs> journal probably um, but it does show that if you know if a metabolic pathway works once in one species it's quite likely that same metabolic pathway will crop up again in other species because it works so well even if they're only distantly related but we've all got the same basic building blocks to work with and you know the dna can come up with all sorts of surprises uh, all across the the kingdom of life i suppose and that's it for another episode of lost in science lost in science is recorded for 3cr in melbourne on the lands of the wurundjeri people of the Kulin nation and it airs across australia on the community radio network with the support of the community broadcasting foundation we would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where at the same time every week, Claire, Stu and Chris get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.